Well, good evening. Uh, first of all, let me say uh, thanks to uh, John and Susan and Robert and Ryan and Sweet Bethany. You all bless so many people with the way you work and and serve uh, and serve in the community here. It's just a blessing for everybody. And if you didn't hear it the first time around, here you go. Give them a hand. I'm still out of breath from just walking down the aisle there. Okay. (laughs) Pray with us, will you please? It is what it is. Father God, uh, we come to you tonight with grateful hearts and thanks for who you are, all you provide, and how you orchestrate your perfect will in our lives. In perfection, Father, you created all things, most of all a Savior for us to be reconciled to you. In contrast, Father, we choose to be selfish, prideful, and self-absorbed. Yet you forgive us and you welcome us with open arms. Father, I can give you praise that we are among the forgiven and that as a result we can run to you and find you waiting. And Father, I give you praise that my wife waited patiently on you while she waited for me with open arms. Will you bless this evening, Father? Will you bless each man and each woman here tonight with your truth, with your assurance, and with any reconciliation that may be necessary? Will you do that, Lord? We claim it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all. We appreciate the chance, and uh, we're grateful. Um, As we continue to work in our 45th year of marriage, uh, some... Some of, this feels God, like, some of this feels like ancient history, and other parts of it are as real as yesterday. But whether you've been married four years or 44, we're all in the same boat. A little background for context. My dad and my mom were Depression-era children that came of age during World War II. My dad served in the Navy and, like nearly all, came home to find a job, marry his sweetheart, and find and build the American dream. He also came home with what we know today all too commonly as the product of post-traumatic stress. It manifested itself in heavy drinking, carousing, and partying. My mom did what she knew how to do, or what to do rather, to please my dad and keep the peace. She joined in the fun. Modestly said, both were alcoholics. My mom was wonderful, instilled much of my early value system, but she defined modern terminology as a people-pleasing, codependent enabler. We had full-on dysfunction in our home and didn't have a clue about it. My early life was a series of contrasts in a family that loved me and gave me values with an orientation to be a servant leader, but it was underprivileged in that it was never modeled, only discussed, and very, very modestly. For me, it was a model of self-discovery through activities, school, athletics, church, scouting. For instance, without any input or consulting my folks, I accepted Christ as my Savior and was baptized at age 13. I'm still not sure my folks were even in the church that day when the baptism, for the baptism. Isn't it amazing, and if you consider it in your life, how we make decisions and learn to cope at very early ages. I was determined to break out of this. Little did I know how much and how insidious these family of origin factors would contribute to my next 40 years. The beginning for me to change this came with an opportunity to be appointed to the Naval Academy and the opportunity to serve my country, seek adventures of my own, and experience life in a wholly different way. I intended to not look back. But then on Christmas Eve in 1966, I had a blind date with a gal that would change my mind and my life. And my life. 
That's what it said. It said, change my mind and my life. Your life. Yeah. And my life. Yeah. Your, your life. No, your life. Got okay. it. So, my parents were also a product of the Depression. They loved me and did their very best to see that I had a good life. But my life was full of contradictions, part grandiosity and part self-doubt. My dad's alcoholism was the elephant in the middle of the room that was never addressed. My mom, sister, and I just adopted coping skills around the issue we never discussed. My dad traveled and was home on the weekends, and it was on the weekends that I witnessed the effects of his alcoholism, the damage it wreaked on their marriage, and how it impacted my sister and me. It was the center of the contradiction. Because of my mom's controlling nature and my father's passivity, I had no sense of self, not a shred. I was a people pleaser. My sense of self was defined by what other people thought of me. On the outside, I looked like a gal that had it all together. I was, inside, I was a scared little girl trying to make it work. On Christmas of my junior year in college, this handsome guy entered the picture bigger than life. We had a crazy courtship. <laughs> He's, he still has a little pride around that. Uh, we had a crazy courtship, more off than on, over a four-year period. And when our relationship was off, I thought Dee was an arrogant horse's patoot. <laughs> After meeting that Christmas with... Uh, oh, is that you? Oh, yeah, that's you, the serpent. Okay, got it. After meeting that Christmas <clears throat> with Roddy at home in Kansas City and me in Annapolis, we saw each other maybe a total of 15 days over the next six months before we broke up. Um, it was a long-lasting relationship. But 18 months later, she simply couldn't resist the invitation to come to Philadelphia for an Army-Navy football game. Well, I have something to say about that. Yep, after two years of not talking to each other, he called to ask me to the Army-Navy game while he was on a date with another gal. Really? I mean, he left her standing in the snow and the cold to call me from a phone booth in Philadelphia. I was out, so my dad answered the phone and took the message to pass along the invitation. When I got home from my date, my dad told me that D, who's that? Oh, D, had called and asked him to invite, asked my dad to invite me to the Army Navy game in late November. Against my bet, I could not believe that. Against my better judgment, I went, not knowing what to expect other than it was going to be cold. But the courtship began, and it seemed perfect at the time. Picture one. You got the pictures? There. No, that's, oh. pic- that's picture two. No, no, that's not even supposed to be there. <laughs> well, hey, thus are the flexible. Okay. So 18 months later, after getting back together at, 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 at Army, uh, we were married, having fewer than 60 days together, stretched over four years of time. There it there is. There we go. Isn't she great? God, it was hot. In okay. fact, <laughs> our, premarital, our premarital counseling consisted of a 30-minute meeting with her pastor, hardly the type to be sanctioned by Watermark's premarriage ministry. So now married, I moved away from home for the first time, and the whirlwind started as he basically left me alone over the next three years, uh, deploying back and forth to Vietnam. At the last time he left, I was three months pregnant with my first son. 
We were adult children of alcoholics, blinded by love and clueless about what it took to be married. The prince and the mar- had married the princess, but almost immediately our hurts, habits, and hang-ups combined to reveal themselves all too quickly. We were on a collision course to trouble and still didn't have a clue how it was supposed to look. Six years later, I resigned my commission and we moved to Washington, D.C. for what turned out to be an interim phase for me to get to know the Lord and for us to work on our marriage. Roddy wanted me to move us to Dallas, but her allegiances were split between her family and me, and the resentments were huge on both of our parts. By this time, we were really in very much trouble. With the move to Washington, I very quickly began to lose myself again, even more so. With one child, I was staying at home while Dee started building a career, and try as I would, I could not make things right, and I could not make him happy. On Friday evenings, we attended prayer meetings at a Georgetown University, which was introduced to us as God works by the only couple we knew in D.C. They were born-again charismatics and on fire with the Holy Spirit. I didn't recognize God's hand in this at the time, but while attending Georgetown, I became infatuated with a guy on the music team, and it almost caused us to divorce. Many years later, I understood that I was lonely and not feeling loved. My sense of grandiosity had kicked in, and I wasn't feeling appreciated or valued. I was looking for D to satisfy my needs, which was a joke, and he certainly wasn't getting his needs met by me. We didn't even know how to identify needs, much less how to communicate them to each other, and divorce was looming like a big storm cloud. It's all true, but I was self-absorbed beyond description. And, okay, I'll admit I was prone to dominate and manipulate Roddy to get my way, usually through uh, verbal brute force. The marriage was so bad I was simply ready to cut my losses. But through seeds of Scripture from childhood, I knew that God hates divorce, and I also loved our first son so much that I couldn't bear the thought of him knowing me as a quitter. We tried everything we could think of, but continued with crazy behaviors, doing only what we knew to do. None of us can do otherwise, and so the need for a ministry like Reengage to study, understand, and work to know Jesus is the true center of our life. With that comes new behaviors, and they're centered on grace. Then God revealed a couple of key things during this mess. One, we sought godly counsel not of the world, but from a godly man who led us deliberately with Scripture, and truth. And he taught me from Ephesians 5 that I'm to love her as Christ loved the church. And also that he assigns roles in marriage, not rank, which implies subordination and subservience. A second thing God did, some 30 years later that we recognized, and long after the Georgetown affair had faded, we made an important second realization with the reengaged chapters on forgiveness. One of the outlined myths is that forgiveness requires forgetting. We know that God forgets and casts our sin as far as east is from west, but as humans, we still remember. We still hold on. The key is that we must, that isn't that we must forget. Forgetting is a myth, and it's not in our DNA to forget. It's recognizing it, is, excuse me, recognizing it's usually about bruised pride. Healing for us occurred when the violation became unimportant, when the pain of remembering was replaced with transformed hearts and a healed relationship when trust was its replacement and there was no place for bitterness or resentment. Not forgetting the grievance, but when it was no longer important in our marriage or in any other relationship. 
As this healing continued, it became clear that the Lord was finally leading us to come to Dallas to be near my family and closer to his uh, mom. But with a much healthier understanding and the tools to manage the influences and challenges of living near domineering and dysfunctional parents. For the next several years, I built a business, uh, sought godly counsel and mentorship, and with it, we were surprised with a wonderful third son. But as a dog returns to his vomit... It was vomit, a surprise third son. Actually, it was a shock. Because I was 40. You can go on. Hey, you get ready. Uh, but as a dog returns to his vomit... Uh, <laughs> oh, that's 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 delicious. <laughs> oh, if you want the serious card, you got to come next week. <laughs> as a dog, as a dog returns to his vomit, I regressed and forgot Peter's admonition in his first letter, chapter five and eight, that my adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, waiting to devour me seeking, looking to devour me. With the material success of a robust business, my old friends, pride, arrogance, self-absorbed self-reliance, moved back in, and I manifested self-destructive ways in seeking my own counsel. I did what I knew to do, manage my image and try to be involved in ministry. But being rejected, as David wrote in Psalm 22, my spirit was beginning to dry up. In retrospect, I believe God was using this rejection as a beginning to take me to my knees. In the chaos that followed, a few years later, we struggled with a prodigal son and began the long process of discovery and recovery, making decisions that I never dreamed we would ever even have to consider. But then we found healing in places we never dreamed there was any pain. In recovery, I attended Al-Anon sanctioned meetings twice a week where I began to feel that it was where I belonged. I found myself with people who seemed to be struggling with the same childhood issues as mine. This was before Watermark and our regeneration recovery program. But for once in my life, I felt safe and I could be me. I stayed in the 12-step recovery program for 13 years. And God used the program and a wonderful woman who became my sponsor to turn my life towards him. That's where, in Watermark, we refer to it as drawing a circle around ourselves. But that's how I had to do it at the time. God performed a miracle in my life. I no longer was codependent. Now, it took a little time. I'm a slow learner. I was was no longer a codependent, allowing my adolescent child to have control over me. I became the woman God wanted me to be. And to this day, it's still a process. By learning who I was and how to accept God's love, I started learning how to love myself. That, in turn, allowed me to let go of my fears and start loving others. I began to set a healthy boundary around D, and I turned the job of changing him over to God. And I prayed a lot. But as the storm clouds abated in our family situation, my companies began under attack. And I reverted to survival mode, alone and without community, trusting no one and believing that no one could either understand or would take the time to help. My Tower of Babel was about to fall. The worse it got, the more I isolated in the fight. I violated my early training, two is one and one is none, 
And the very counsel of Ecclesiastes 4 that says, Woe to the man that falls and doesn't have a brother to pick him up. With absolutely no community, sense of transparency, or accountability, I struggled to maintain my identity, image, self-esteem, and financial well-being. I trusted no one and no one offered. Roddy and I didn't know how to help ourselves, much less each other. Slowly at first, and then at a very fast pace, and certainly not gently, God continued to strip me. About this time in 2002, we began attending Watermark at the high school. I can't remember a thing Todd taught. I can only remember the impact, and I recognized it as the Holy Spirit moving in my heart. As I yielded, he began to transform me. The darkest days were yet to come, but I stood on the claim that I was being held in God's very right hand. Scripture came alive to me again, and while I hated what was happening, and with our financial net worth evaporating, I had to reconcile that God was in total control as he promised. As believers were called in Romans 8 to be conformed in the image of Christ, called, justified, glorified, and sanctified. A painful and sometimes lonely process. I also learned once again never to doubt in the dark the decisions that I had made in the light. One key event was the afternoon I sat with Roddy and acknowledged I was helpless and had surrendered to the Lord. He not only had me fully on my knees, but was preparing me for a full-on face plant. I told her if, there were any, if she were looking to me for any of the answers, she was asking the wrong guy. I had come to the realization that surrendering to the Lord is not the same as losing. Instead, it's to claim victory in an absolute dichotomy in human terms, but the essential contrast with common sense. I've learned to pursue biblical sense, not that which is common to man. While I appreciated Roddy's trust in me and that I could solve any problem, I needed her help in the way we approached the problems, managed our resources, and made our decisions. To say I've been trusting in myself and leaning on my own understanding is an understatement. I had always tried to lead my family well, but generally with a brute force approach. It usually created tension, bitterness, and resentment. Instead, I committed to pray with her daily, and I asked her to join me in seeking God's will in all the issues. I acknowledged that I had no answers, but if she were trusting me, in me, the party was over. Jeremiah 6. I love Jeremiah. And in the sixth chapter, he tells us, You're standing at the crossroads, so consider your path. Ask where the old, reliable paths are. Ask where the path is that leads to blessing, and follow it. If you do, you'll find rest for your souls. Simply said, trust in the Lord with all our hearts. And somewhere in here, we began to pray together daily. In fact, it's a privilege to me to issue a challenge to each of the guys in my life to pray with their women daily. Daily. It changed our life together, slowly but entirely. And it heals today's wounds today, not tomorrow, not next week, but today. And it keeps short accounts. So we took the side of truth and the literal conclusion that because the Lord is in control, as he says in Philippians 4, we have nothing to worry about. And because of this, we can see almost everything in a lighter spirit. Specifically, we can laugh at ourselves more and at the crazy stuff in our marriage that used to drive us absolutely nuts. We are perfect, and our marriage is still a work in progress, even at 45 years. I'm still the chucklehead she married and probably always will be. Our marriage has had more challenges than we even care to recall. But the Lord is Lord of our relationship. Jesus has healed our marriage and our relationships with our sons. 
and he stands ready to accept yours as the next victory in this life that we share together. The depth of our depravity doesn't shock him. There's no violation or problem that's too big, too ugly, too socially unacceptable. And I'm grateful that as a body of Christ, the people of Watermark are setting a standard for the acceptance of the sinner. Not the sin, but the sinner, without judgment and in love. Like you, my life is, in, is a work in progress, equipping me to serve the Lord. My role as a wife, a mother, a mentor, a friend, as a teacher and leader. I often tell people that I cannot remember a day that I haven't had to work on my marriage. Daily, I have to die to myself. Not an easy thing to do for an insecure, entitled princess. <laughs> but Jesus is at the very hub of our marriage. He is the hub. D and I are the spokes. We part daily, he doing his thing and me doing mine, but praying together daily and being open to the Holy Spirit's leading. My encouragement to you guys is to never give up. At one point in my marriage, I had a choice to move with D or to call it quits and move back to my family. Our marriage was stressed to the max, and we were in deep, deep trouble. The Holy Spirit informed me from Jeremiah 29, what if you don't try? What if my plan is to prosper you? I was afraid of living with regret, and so I listened to the Holy Spirit communicate his truth. Pray and work on it, but wait on the Lord to transform you, your spouse, and your marriage. I'm so blessed to be sharing life with the love of my life. I have a marriage I never knew could exist. God has restored what the locusts ate, just as Joel wrote in in chapter 2. The most important point I want to share with you guys, we said and we did a lot of hurtful things to each other, but Jesus never stopped pursuing us. Trust him to heal your marriage. Become a prayer warrior with and for your spouse and your marriage, no matter how you're feeling. He wants your marriage to work, and he is faithful in bringing that about. Just as he healed our hearts and our marriage, and if he can do that, he can do that to yours too. He will heal yours if you allow him. It's a sweet thing to experience and to be leading and re-engage and to watch others. So as we close this, what if you don't try? You're here because you want to try, but what if you don't try and thus prevent the healing, the reconciliation, and the victory? Will your children know the blessings of your relationship with Jesus, or will they know you as quitters? If we'd quit, we'd have missed the joy and the blessing of raising a family to know the Lord. David? David? Wrong picture, man. Keep it rolling. It's the family shot. You're getting there. That started it. That's all he's got? Oh, that's... Well, what do you know? That's all we've got to. And we'd have missed the enormous blessing that comes with loving on grandchildren. Now we've got to talk, David. Success in your marriage requires commitment and transparency. It requires and provides accountability. And it allows the Holy Spirit to move, shake, tend to, and heal broken hearts and dreams. I trust that somewhere in our story tonight are a few nuggets of truth for you to bury deep in your hearts. But I also trust these nuggets are not merely the common sense of one man or just one woman, but instead are gifts to you from a loving father. Your backgrounds, your families of origin, your circumstances, your methods of processing are different than ours. 
Therefore, your issues seem unique, but there's nothing unique about it. We're sinners, full of ourselves, proud, arrogant, and selfish. And we need a Savior that can put a salve on our hearts and heal the relationships in our lives. To the men, you must know well and embed in your heart Paul's writing in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16 and 13. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be brave and strong, act like a man. There's no alternative. There's no valid alternative. There's no worthy alternative to sanctification, to become more Christ-like. And finally, for those of us in this room, there's no substitute for a Christ-centered, vibrant relationship and a loving, productive, blessed ministry called marriage. We know you can do this, and we pray your victory in this adventure. Then it'll be your testimony to God's unfailing and unconditional love. Blessings on each of you.